Genesis 29, verses 15 through 30. Now, I'm going to be old school, you know, and say to y'all, uh, when you have it, say amen. <laughs> all right, all right. It reads, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So, Laban, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Question, what does this scripture passage and a soap opera have in common? <laughs> Judging by the laugh, you all are familiar with soap operas, right? Does anybody here still watch those? Okay, good. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a set. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to shame anybody. I'm sorry. Good. If you watch soap operas, do you? I'm at. Um, <laughs> funny enough, I, I, have a, I have a kind of a tense relationship with soap operas because my mom, you know, like, you know, moms and, you know, they make home videos and everything like that. You know, back when I was born, my mom had this VHS tape that she made with me and my little brother. And it was just all these beautiful moments that she had captured, you know, with my little brother taking his first steps and, you know, me um, running around, you know, five, six years old or whatever. Um, and my grandmother, bless her heart, happened to have our uh, VCR set to record her stories at a certain time in the day. And my mom left the home videotape in there. And so, you know, the beautiful moments that my brother and I shared as children were <laughs> basically taped over with the bold and the beautiful and the young and the restless and general hospital and yeah um i think my mom's forgiving her mom for that uh but anyway this does seem like a soap opera doesn't it let, let me just kind of give you the basic characteristics of a soap opera so some of the things that define soap operas are an emphasis on family life 
personal relationships, sexual dramas, emotional and moral conflicts, some coverage of topical issues set in familiar domestic interiors with only occasional excursions into new locations. All this sounds familiar, right? Fitting in with these characteristics, most soap operas follow the lives of a group of characters who live or work in a particular place or focus on a large extended family. The storylines follow the day-to-day activities and personal relationships of these characters. This is a soap opera. It's, it's crazy how similar they actually are. And so I named, I named off some of the, the, you know, the names of a few of the most famous ones, you know, the bold and the beautiful, young and the restless, general hospital, all those kind of things. I'm sure there are others. Days of our lives, Lord. They... So I'm going to try to follow in that naming conviction with the name of this sermon. I'm going to call it the user and the used. Not as clever as I thought it would be, okay. Um, (laughs) The user and the use, and I I hope to really kind of highlight what I mean by that. Um, Before I do that, though, can you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word brings life. Your word brings comfort. Your word brings correction that challenges us uh, in our inward man. Um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to be able to share your word with your people I pray, God, that you would uh, anoint me from my head to my feet, that you would give me the words to say and how to say them. God, help me even with my nervousness and anxiety. Um, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of your people, that they'd be receptive, and that we not just be hearers of your word, but that we'd be doers of your word as well. And just help us, God, to be changed by your word and uh, to really take heart to what you are saying. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first point is that the user becomes the used. The user becomes the used. We approach this text beginning with Jacob. Jacob has arrived in Haran. Jacob was sent there previously uh, by Isaac. Now, I want to show some parallels here between Abraham's servant, if you recall, being sent by Abraham to seek out a wife for Isaac, and now Jacob going to the same place to seek his own wife. So what do the two have in common? Both are sent to find a wife from Abraham's kinfolk. Abraham sends his servant to Haran to find a wife for him from his kin. Jacob goes himself, is sent by Isaac. And Isaac is actually much more specific in his instructions to Jacob. This is probably because he had the experience of, you know, the servant going and performing his task for him. So he then kind of knew, okay, Jacob, here's what you avoid. Here's specifically where you go. Go to this specific house. Follow these specific instructions. Isaac, thankfully, had been paying attention. So, and I want to go back a little bit to Genesis 28, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. I feel like Isaac was so adamant about this because of the fact that in the previous chapter, Rebekah had basically said, Look, Sir, these Canaanite women, these Hittite women are wearing me out. If Jacob gets one of these women, God forbid, my life is not worth anything. So Isaac, being a wise man, listened to his wife, (laughs) said to Jacob, you must not (laughs) take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Haram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. You see that there's there's real specifics here. 
with Abraham and his servant, he just said, look, go to the land of my kinfolk. <laughs> that was basically the gist of it. God Almighty, Isaac is saying to Jacob, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Also interesting in the beginning of chapter 29 is that Jacob, like Abraham's servant, finds the lady that he's looking for at a well. Animals are being watered in both instances. With Abraham's servant, there's camels being watered. In this instance, sheep are being watered. Now, Rebecca did the watering for Abraham's servant, if you recall. Jacob, on the other hand, takes the initiative and does the watering for Rachel when she comes to the well. Jacob mentions who he is, and Rachel runs and tells her father. Similarly, Rebecca, when she finds out why Abraham's servant is there, she runs and tells her father. But she's said to have told her mother's household, Rebecca here. Rebecca went and told her entire household. It says here that Rachel specifically went and told her father. So I think this kind of starts to hint at how prominent Laban is going to be as a character in this portion of the soap opera. <laughs> like before, you remember Laban goes out and meets this guest. Laban went out to meet Abraham's servant, said, oh man, we look, we've... Your, 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 your family, come, dine with us. Let me show you this Abrahamic hospitality that we're famous for, right? He does the same thing with Jacob. And he says to him, well, oh, well, you're, you're really family. So by all means, come, dine with us, eat with us. Now, here's where you start to see some differences. Because unlike the servant who was in a hurry to get back to Canaan, Jacob stays, lingers for years upon years. Now, why does he do that? Well, we're getting to that. So in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 29, Jacob is now given Laban basically a free month of labor. Okay? After this month of free labor, Laban then asks him, because he wants to do right by him, at least it seems, what should your wages be? Right? I, I got to pay you, young man, for, for the work that you're doing. I, I appreciate you. So what you, should your wages be? But Jacob doesn't want money. He wants Rachel. Okay? At this point, we're first introduced to Leah in verse 17. And the first thing that we learn about Leah is that her eyes are weak. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've heard preachers... <sighs> I've heard preachers call Leah cross-eyed. I've heard preachers say that uh, one eye was over here and the other eye was over here. I've heard preachers say a bunch of crazy stuff. I I'm not going to dispute what I've heard in the past, but based on what I've studied, the Hebrew word for that word uh, weak there could also be translated as soft, gentle, and tender. So it may not have been that Leah had some physical impairment that made her just totally unattractive. It could be, perhaps, that she just wasn't as attractive as Rachel. That's just something to keep in mind. There's actually a Jewish rabbi named Sarah Mack who says, it's difficult to determine if Leah's eyes are an impairment or a physical description. The rabbis teach that Leah's eyes were tender because she wept constantly in prayer that she would not have to marry Esau. That's speculation. That's not Bible. <laughs> but it's something to think about. 
the idea of marrying Esau to Leah might have been, you know, not as favorable. And the reason why that was even a possibility is because, you know, in Near Eastern culture, it was customary for the oldest daughter in a family to marry the oldest son. So Jacob marrying Leah was actually not what the custom or the typical uh, way this, this would have went would be. But again, that's speculation. <laughs> what we do know is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was customary for a prospective husband to shell out like a huge amount of money for the bride-to-be. This is called the bride price. This is different from a dowry. A dowry is when a bride actually brings money to the family of the, the husband. But this was a bride price. Jacob, uh, his checking account was on E. So in his lovesick state of mind, he offers seven years to Laban to basically account for the amount of money that he wants to pay for Rachel. This is an offer that Laban would be foolish to refuse. So Laban takes the deal. Now, me thinking through this, because I, I more or less kind of see how this plays out, I'm wondering whether or not Laban at this point started to kind of maybe start the process of, am I going to start deceiving this guy here? Or I, I'm, I'm kind of speculating, when did Laban begin the process of thinking how he was going to deceive Jacob? I wonder if it was this moment where Jacob now makes this almost too good to be true offer and Laban notices how naive he is. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But at any rate, Laban agrees to the deal. And he, he kind of seems to string Jacob along. He's like, you know what, man? Look, I... I, I it's the best that I give her to you, man. It's this, this is a great arrangement. I don't see anybody more qualified to marry my, my Rachel than you. You're kind of flattering him in a sense. And Jacob is eating this up because, I mean, he's lovesick, right? He's, he's not in his right state of mind. <laughs> so to a lovesick brother like Jacob, seven years, and it says so in Scripture, seven years more or less seemed like days. Days. Just, just Jacob was just... You could see him whistling while he's work, you know, hopping and skipping, just, you know, he, he, was, he was in. He was in. Now, as we move further into the story, um, verses 25 through 30, we get to the point now where Jacob's seven years is up. And Jacob is like, okay, hey, man, look, I, I kept my end of the bargain. Let me have my wife. Late Laban stringing him on again more or less seems to agree. Like, oh, yeah, you're right, man, it's time. Okay, let's throw this big feast. Let's start the party. Let, let, let's, let's, let's go all in. Let's celebrate this, this, this deal that we've now come to the end of. So they throw a big feast. As you all know, wedding parties back then compared to they are now were much more elaborate. They weren't just like, you know, a day of stress. It was a week of stress. So, <laughs> okay, so after this feast, Laban pulls the ultimate bait and switch. Again, I'm speculating. How did Jacob miss this? What, what, was the brother drunk? What was, what, what was going on? Now, granted, the bride would have been heavily veil, veiled, so perhaps he didn't see her face, but even then, bro, come on. Like, this is the, this is the woman you loved from the moment you saw her. You've worked for her seven years. I'm pretty sure you've seen her on more than one occasion. You couldn't distinguish between her and her sister? Again, just me speculating. 
I, I just find it hard to believe. But at any rate, the con is, the con is made. Laban pulls this off. Jacob wakes up, and it is not his beloved. It's Leah. He's understandably upset. Come on, man. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why did you do this to me? And Laban, being a sly individual, brings up like this cultural technicality. Like, yeah, uh, in, our, in the way we do it here in the country, um, it's not good for like the younger daughter to be married before the oldest daughter. This would have been really good to bring up prior to all of this. And then he goes further and cons another seven years out of Jacob. Now, thankfully, Jacob only had, to wake, only had to wait a week to marry Rachel. He didn't have to wait another seven years to marry Rachel. It says that Laban says, you know, look, complete this week, which what he means by that is make sure that this wedding feast or celebration plays out. After this week of wedding celebration, then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob didn't have to wait another seven years to marry her, but he was bound to work another seven years for Laban. So a week later, Jacob, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what his mind state is right now. I'm sure he's still upset, but he has his beloved, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Nah. <laughs> let, let's, take a, let's take a moment to analyze this mess, Okay. Let, 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 let's take a moment. Go with me here. Laban has just scammed his nephew Jacob. Now, there's a part of us, honestly, that'd be like, well, Jacob had that coming to him because you remember what he did to Esau, right? Yeah, you, you, you're getting yours, Jacob. It's easy for us to fall into that. But again, let's keep in mind where these characters are. Jacob comes to Laban's house, is blown away by his hospitality, and seems to look up to Laban in some way because he just spent the last month working for him. And then concurrently to that, another seven years working for the woman that he loved. So he's, he's placed a good bit of trust in his uncle. And this is family. And you get betrayed like this by family. So whether or not you want to say, well, Jacob got what he deserved, this still hurt him. So this now begins to set the stage for a cycle of this trust between Jacob and Laban, and we'll get to that some later. Another thing to keep in mind, Laban more or less sells his daughters. That's another factor here that, that we really have to pay attention to. Sells his daughters for 14 years of labor. Granted, this might have been somewhat customary back then. Near Eastern culture is a different culture. In our Americanized minds, the concept of that is just ridiculous. But even though it was customary, it still soured the relationship that Laban had with Rachel and Leah. We see this later on in Genesis 31, and I don't have that particular scripture, guys. Sorry about that. But Genesis 31, verses 14 to 15, Rachel and Leah talk to Jacob and say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. Rachel and Leah do not have a good relationship with the father. And perhaps because of these daddy issues, right, they now kind of 
start competing for affection and approval, and they start waging this, this, this childbearing war. I want to take a moment to acknowledge those in the room who, like Jacob, like Leah, like Rachel, have somehow found themselves misused and abused by those that they trusted most. Particularly if those trusted people were family or perhaps people that you looked up to. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge. I can't relate to everything that people have gone through. I've experienced some of that. But there are some who have been badly misused and abused. I'll expand on that a little bit later as well, but I just want to say God, God sees you. He sees you. He understands the trust issues perhaps that you might have, and he loves you dearly. And contrary to the people perhaps that have misused and abused you in the past, God is totally trustworthy. Totally. And that may be a concept perhaps that's hard to digest and swallow, but God is totally trustworthy. So back to this soap opera, and really kind of going into my second point, which is that the used now becomes the user. So we establish here that Jacob, Leah, and Rachel have been used, right? In chapter 30, this is now where we start to see Rachel and Leah really acting out <laughs> the emotional damage of their abuse, okay? Verses 1 through 4, chapter 40, Rachel sees that Leah has already had four sons and that she's barren. So she becomes envious. She starts envying her sister. And she goes to Jacob one day and starts yelling at him. Is like, look, give me kids or I'm going to die. Okay? Jacob kind of claps back like, hang on, baby girl. I'm, I'm not God. <laughs> uh, he's the one who's perhaps held up your womb. Take it up with him. Not the most sensitive answer. <laughs> so Rachel, instead of trusting God in that moment, says, well, here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah has two sons on Rachel's behalf, the used becomes the user. Rachel, having been used, now starts to use her servant girl. And then in verse 9, now Leah's already had four sons by this point, but Leah had stopped bearing children for some reason or another, but she follows suit. She now sees Rachel, I guess, kind of getting the, the upper hand, so to speak, and now Leah throws her servant into the fray. And so Bilhah now has two sons on Leah's behalf. I'm sorry, Zilpah has two sons on Leah's behalf. And Rachel and Leah, in a strange way, they, they, they pimp out Jacob. What I mean by that is this. This is a soap opera, y'all, so y'all got to be prepared for drama. Uh, verses 14 through 16, so Rachel wants uh, this type of fruit called mandrakes. Okay, she sees Reuben, Leah's oldest son, come back home with, with a bunch of mandrakes, right? Now, 
Rachel asked for these mandrakes. It was believed then that mandrakes contributed to fertility. So this is the reason why Rachel wanted them. Now, Rachel's like, hey, may I have some of your son's mandrakes? Leah throws a fit. Uh Uh-uh, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. You already took my man. Now you want my mandrakes? (laughs) Nah, sis, nah, nah, this is, I'm, 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 you know, I'm totally paraphrasing. Uh, Rachel's like, okay, sis, here's what we can do. How about you give me the mandrakes and you can have Jacob for the night? What? This is in the Bible. <laughs> okay, anybody that tells me the Bible is boring is just not paying attention. That, that I'm just... So Genesis 30 and 16, it says, When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. It's, it's in the text. <laughs> I have hired you. Jacob got pimped out, y'all. And apparently he, he's like, okay, I, okay, oh, not a problem. Let, let's, okay. So they, they come together. Leah has another son. It's, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. The users, number one, we saw with Jacob has become the used, and now the used have become the users. And one of the most ironic and perhaps tragic things about this, really about using people in general, is that when you use people to get what you want, most of the time what you want isn't a bad thing. In in, in this case here, Leah really just wanted genuine love from her husband. That's all she wanted. Rachel wanted children, but More than that, it seems like she more or less wanted God's approval, right? Because barrenness, infertility during that time was kind of seen as this curse from God. So in her heart, in her mind, she's like, well, God doesn't favor me somehow because I'm barren, and he favors Leah more than me. Neither of those things that they wanted were bad, but the way they went about it was awful. And that's the thing when you use people. What you're desiring might not be evil, but the means does not justify the ends. Neither of them, neither Leah nor Rachel, trusted God fully for these things. Leah didn't trust God for love for her husband. Frankly, if she had trusted God fully, she would have known that, look, the love of a man doesn't make me who I am. Rachel, if she had trusted God fully, would have seen that God does approve of her and accept her, and she doesn't need to do any work to gain that approval or acceptance. That's a word for a lot of us in here, me included. But instead of trusting God fully for these things, they went about using people to try and get them. And as is often the case, Right? We've either experienced this from the user end or the used end. Damage is caused both to ourselves and to the other people involved. And we, we see it playing out. And we, we go now into, as we go to transition from Leah and Rachel's kind of tiff, 
I want to take it now to Jacob and his strife with Laban. Because remember, Jacob has been betrayed by Laban, right? Laban and Jacob are no longer on good terms right now. There's this cycle of distrust now. Jacob now views Laban more or less as a competitor, a guy that I can't trust. And the same is true of Laban. So in verse 25 of chapter 30, Jacob is finally, finally seeking to go back to Canaan. But it's clear that Laban does not want Jacob to leave. Cause, and Laban says this, you know, well, I've, I've come to the conclusion by divination, right? Again, that's speculation about whether God actually spoke to him about it. But he's come to the conclusion that, you know, well, Jacob, I'm blessed with you being here. I'm prospering with you being here. I don't want you to leave, nephew. Please stay. What's your wage? Right? He, he goes again to this thing, what do I got to pay you to stay, man? And Jacob is more or less fed up, but he's willing to stay if Laban does this for him. Jacob says, look, I'll take all of the speckled, the spotted, and black sheep and goats as my own. You can have the rest for yourself. So Jacob is basically saying, I'll take the animals of the flock that are blemished, that aren't as strong, that are more or less undesirable. I'll take those and you can have the rest. I, I, I just need something of my own. Jacob was saying this to Laban, look, I have nothing of my own that I actually own that I can provide as inheritance to my household. So Laban, you've already done me dirty. Unc, can you please just give me this? <laughs> Laban is like, okay, that's, that, that's fine. Laban agrees, but then he tries to scam Jacob again. What, what Laban does is he takes, and this is all in, in chapter 30. Laban agrees and, and takes the spotted, the blemished, the black goats and sheep, and he takes those and goes about a three days distance away from Jacob. Now, shepherding, you're, you're typically always in motion, right? So a three days journey is a long time. So Laban does this, takes away what Jacob was potentially looking to gain as his own, and puts three days distance away from them. Jacob, however, being the sly dog that he is, because again, you know, game knows game, right? <laughs> so Jacob, and it's, it's, it's really, really uh, bizarre how Jacob does this, but he, he takes these, these, these uh, almond and poplar sticks, and he peels them away, and it exposes these white streaks. And somehow, I'm, I'm almost thinking this might be magic. I don't know. But the, 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 the sheep and goats that are in Jacob's possession at that point, he, ha he puts these sticks next to the streams, right? And while the sheep and goats are breeding, them looking at those exposed sticks somehow or another causes them to breed spotted and speckled and black sheep and goats. I don't know all the technical, maybe some of the scholars in here can help me out later with how that came about. But needless to say, Jacob basically overcomes Laban's deception. And he winds up raising a bunch of spotted, speckled, and black sheep and goats to the point to where his flock and his uh, possessions now start to compete with Laban's. Now it's getting to a point to where the two can no longer coexist. 
And if anything, a lot of the sheep and goats that Jacob now was breeding were of higher quality than Laban's. Now, knowing Laban, this does not go over well with him. We, we, we've seen his character so far. Laban doesn't like having what he dishes out brought back to him. So in chapter 31, we, we see now that Jacob notices in verse 2 of chapter 31 that he does not have Laban's favor anymore. So Laban used to look on Jacob favorably like, you're more or less my cash cow, man. Now Jacob sees, oh, now that I'm competing with you, I no longer have that favorable opinion in your eyes. So then at that point, Jacob finally says, okay, look, I need to get back to Canaan. And the Lord actually says to him, go back to Canaan. I will bless you there. So Jacob now consults with his wives about his plans to part ways with their father. And it's here that I want to get to my third point, which is the God of the user and the used. Because where has God been in all this? We've, we've spanned now three chapters, right? And the majority of what we've seen is drama. <laughs> the majority of what we've seen is people scheming against each other, people using each other, users becoming used, used becoming users, right? Where has God been in all of this? I'm glad you asked. If you go back to Genesis 29, verses 31 to 34, this is right when Jacob marries Leah. And it's clear to Leah that Jacob loves Rachel more than her. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now, granted, Leah is still coming to the wrong conclusion here, but she does acknowledge that God has looked on her affliction. She conceived again and bore a son and said, The Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given to me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she goes on to have a fourth son named Judah. And at that point she says, Okay, this time... I'm just going to actually praise God for what he's done. Now, granted, she hasn't completely gotten over this obsession with having Jacob's approval and affection because there are subsequent sons that she names where she kind of keeps going back to, now my, 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 my husband will honor me. Now he'll love me. She isn't completely over that. But you see, God is here. He's present. He heard Leah's affliction. You see later on in, in chapter 30, verses 22 to 23, God remembered Rachel. Remember, Rachel is barren, which she saw as more or less a reproach from God. It says God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
God's been in the text the whole time. If you want to go to chapter 31, verses 3 through 7, the Lord says to Jacob, as I mentioned before, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. But God did not permit him to harm me. In the midst of all this drama, in the midst of every nasty ploy and plot that we have seen here, God has been present. He has been present. And you even see it further on in chapter 31 when Laban and Jacob finally, finally come to terms. And I encourage you to go and read that for yourself. For the sake of time, I can't delve too deep into it. But they actually get to a point to where having worked out and hashed out the differences, they, they form a covenant. And they basically say to each other, look, I'm not going to cross this line. <laughs> You're not going to cross this line. We're going to part ways. I'm not going to do any harm to you. You don't do any harm to me. How did they get to that point? Having seen the damage that they've done to each other, how did they get to that point? I submit to you it's because God is the God of both the user and the used. Family, this passage of Scripture is not that far removed from situations we find ourselves in now. If we want to look at even beyond our own individual uh, family circumstances, life circumstances, if we want to look at society as a whole, it seems like this soap opera that's playing out, right? Drama everywhere, betrayal everywhere, trust issues everywhere, people being used and using people everywhere. And sometimes, if we're honest, we're tempted to ask, well, where is God in the midst of all this? But he's here. He's present. He's always been. What I believe he's calling us to do today is what it says in Psalm 37, 3 through 5. And we read it in the call to worship. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed and befriend his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. You don't have to use people to get what you want. Trust God and do good. That doesn't mean you'll be able to avoid all the drama that comes in life. Everybody is going to live some version of a soap opera and like the old folks say, you know, if you haven't gone through anything, just keep living. But if we learn to trust God fully, we don't have to fall into some of the same patterns that they fell into here. We don't have to use people and see them as tools or means to an end. Trust God and do good. Delight yourself in him and he will give you 
the desires of your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We're so, so thankful, God, that you are a God of both the user and the used. You are a God who sees the drama in our lives. You see all of the things that we go through and the times when we've not trusted in you and tried to take matters into our own hands. You've seen our sin. You've seen everything about us, Lord. We are open books to you. And yet we're grateful, God, that in the midst of drama that we've both caused and has been brought on us, you've been in the midst. You are a God of grace, of love. You are slow to anger. You are full of compassion. And we are so grateful, God, and we just ask you, God, to forgive us for times that we've sought to fulfill our desires by corrupt means, that we've sought to gain things by using people. Forgive us for that. And God, those of us that have been misused and abused, I pray, God, that you would touch and heal their hearts and help them to know that they can trust fully in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.